Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Good evening. And a happy Chinese New Year's. I see zero Chinese people. Oh, no, I don't. I see one. Company Boston, but maybe it owns a lot. Welcome to St. Thomas University and the first Canada Land podcast here. I'd like to thank our sponsors, NB Media Co-op and St. Thomas University's Department of Journalism. I am a professor in that same department. Uh, my name is Jan Wong. And uh, to start with, I just want to ask Jesse Brown, who's standing right there in the gray shirt, do you always blow away the local media before you arrive in town? <laughs> He'll answer that later. So you know about Larry's Gulch? There's Larry's Gulch Fishing Lodge, and it was a Canada Land scoop. And um, I think Jesse refers to it as Gulch Gate. I would call it Delete Gate myself. Um, as you probably heard, an Irving editor took a free junket to Larry's Gulch in 2013. And then, unbeknownst to him, another reporter at another Irving newspaper asked for a Freedom of Information request for the guest list. And then that created this big problem. And now two editors are gone, and a third is demoted. And that's sort of right into our topic. I mean, you, you did a really good job. That was such a good segue into tonight's topic, which is um, the media, the forests, and the Irvings. 
First of all, I want to talk about our own relationship with the Irvings, because this is all about conflict of interest now. Everybody's scared. Every journalist in Canada is so scared. So we need to disclose our own conflict of interest. We have several faculty members in our journalism department who used to work for the Irving newspapers. And I want to say that the Irving papers do do very good work sometimes. They, they win awards. And my own full disclosure is uh, I first came here as an Irving chair <laughs> to this university. The Irvings donated $1 million. And I want to tell you that they are hands off. So now, over to Jesse Brown. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. If you take the list, the list of the biggest landowners in the world, and the New Statesman magazine compiled just such a list, if you take that list and you remove from the list the Queen of England, the Pope, and a handful of Arab royals, emirs and sultans and sheiks, then the Irving family are the number one landowners in the world. Here in New Brunswick, they are a dominating landowner and a dominating player in a dominant industry, forestry. I just learned, actually, that none of the pulp that uh, is produced by the Irvings are used uh, to produce paper. They got out of newsprint. There's no money in that anymore. Uh, But the Irvings are still in newspapers. Their Brunswick news chain 
constitutes an all but total monopoly on print media in this province. The Irvings have received criticism about their relationship to and influence over the various governments of this province through the years, and about the use of their media monopoly to propagate their interests and shut out contrary voices. A little further context, as Jan got into a little bit, a Canada Land investigation by our reporter Sean Craig revealed last week that an Irving newspaper editor was a secret guest at a remote government fishing lodge, Larry's Gulch, the head of New Brunswick Liquor, and then Premier David Allward were also present. This editor uh, concealed his presence and conspired with another Brunswick News editor to doctor government records and scrub the Larry's Gulch guest logs. Once Brunswick News found out about our investigation, they launched one of their own, and neither of those editors work for the Irvings anymore. It also must be mentioned today, uh, this very morning, Brunswick News' ombudswoman, Patricia Graham, criticized Canada Land's coverage, asserting that we linked Jamie Irving with a crime. We did not. We have no evidence that Jamie Irving, the publisher of the Times and Transcript, had anything to do with the alleged crime of doctoring a government record. What we had and what we have still are questions, because we still don't know. We, we, we don't know exactly when Jamie Irving found out about this alleged crime. We don't know if he went straight to the authorities, when he did learn about it. So we're going to continue to ask those questions. And tonight we're going to ask different questions. The New Brunswick Media Co-op has assembled an amazing panel tonight. I will introduce them all in a moment. We are at Kinsella Auditorium at St. Thomas University, taping live in Fredericton, New Brunswick. Hello. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Terry Jackson, Mark Colborn, Paul, Britt, Vivian Hingsberg, Heather, Edison Mann, Bernie Henry, Megan McIlroy, Jennifer McClellan, and CJFE. I, I'm so pleased that Canadian Journalists for Free Expression is sponsoring Canada Land. Uh, it's an organization I'm a member of. I've been volunteering for them for years. And I asked Tom, who runs CJFE, to explain a bit about what they do. We are an organization that fights for the free expression rights of every Canadian and uh, also of people around the world. Um, we, do, we do a lot of stuff. We have the Journalists in Distress Fund, um, where we give emergency grants to journalists abroad in places like Syria, Ukraine, uh, the Middle East, uh, Africa. Um, if they get shot, we'll pay for emergency surgery. Um, we paid uh, Ali Mustafa, was a Canadian reporter in Syria, um, who very sad, tragically was killed by a, a bomb dropped from a government plane, um, and we, uh, we gave his family a grant to help get his body back to Canada. Yeah, so we paid for court costs, things like that. That is where your money goes when you become a member. These guys do very important work with very limited funds, and you can help right now if you go to cjfe.org, click Become a Member, and they have a 70% discount on right now uh, for new members, for listeners of this podcast. And you can also find out about the perks and pub nights with journalists and their annual review, all of which you will get when you join me and become a member of CJFE. Do it. Joining me tonight on the panel, Tracy Glynn, the founder and editor of the New Brunswick Media Co-op. Jacques Poitras, author of Irving vs. Irving, Canada's Feuding Billionaires and the Stories They Won't Tell, and a journalist with a certain public broadcaster. He's not here uh, as their representative. What are they called? Never mind, it's okay. 
Charles Theriot, documentary videographer at isourforestreallyours.com. And David Kuhn, leader of the Provincial Green Party and recently elected member of the legislature for Fredericton South. Please, a warm round of applause for our panel. All right, and I have to ask before we begin, uh, are there any Brunswick News International representatives here tonight? Uh, any Irving lawyers in the house? It's okay, everyone's welcome. I just, I'm just curious. Any, any, no? Any B&I reporters? It's okay. Okay, hello. <laughs> welcome, welcome. I just want to know how nervous I need to be tonight, that's all. <laughs> Jacques, can you take a swing at a synopsis for us? Uh, what is the current controversy around forestry in New Brunswick, and, and what role does the media play in it? Go. Last year, the provincial government announced a plan to um, allow the private industry, which has leases on public land called Crown Land, allow them to increase their, uh, their harvesting. David and others have asserted that that level of cutting is too high for the forest to be sustainable. This is a a level of cutting that the Irvings and others had lobbied for for more than a decade using a variety of public and private pressure, lobbying. The Irving newspapers naturally have covered this story, and we can get into how they've covered it, but the power and influence of the family is central to this debate, and as a journalist, as you know, I, I mean, I don't come at this with an opinion or an ideological point of view, but the fact is that the family's powerful, and they got the, the, um, the harvesting numbers that they wanted out of, out of this government, or the, of the government that was in office at the time last year. And set up for us a little bit how forestry has been doing here in, in, in this uh, part of Canada that was founded on forestry. Uh, what, what is the state of that industry? Well, I mean, New Brunswick essentially began as what, I mean, one author called it a timber colony. I mean, it, it was built around cutting wood and, uh, and uh, sawing wood and using wood to build ships and, and other things. Lately, in recent years, uh, many mills have closed. There were, what, 10 leaseholders at one time? And now I think there are three or four? Four. Four. And what has happened is that Irving has taken over more of the leases that were abandoned by some of the other companies that closed their mills and left. So I think it's fair to say that Irving now occupies a bigger piece of the pie than they ever did before. And consequently, governments feel a certain pressure to accommodate them because their mills are scattered around the province, and so there are a lot of local communities that feel they depend on those jobs. The new government that was elected in September during the election campaign promised to review this new forestry plan because there was a lot of criticism from it but never came out and said they would reverse it or undo it. Uh, David and others have views of how forest industry can be done differently that can still create jobs and not rely on big industry as much um, but uh, that's, I guess that's the, that's the long and short of it. The forest industry has taken a hit and, um, and that has made the companies that remain including Irving even more important relative to the economy. David, in your opinion, to what extent do J.D. Irving Limited and the government of New Brunswick and Brunswick News kind of walk together? To what extent have they worked together in concert to achieve the goals of the Irving family? Well, I think you've got to kind of pull Brunswick News out a little bit because that's changed over time depending on who the publisher was. 
Jim Irving Sr. was never very involved with the paper. So what's changed uh, recently, though, is Jamie Irving is now directly involved in the newspapers. It's, it's not a secret uh, that uh, J.D. Irving uh, is regularly on the phone, in the offices, uh, at the Department of Natural Resources, with PowerPoints on a regular basis, uh, on this and that and the other thing. So their constant presence there for sure and, and also their constant presence when there's a story that uh, in the media that they take issue with for one reason or another uh, they are on the phone or they're writing letters so that uh, deans of universities get get calls if it was an academic who was speaking uh, about something that related to their businesses or media outlet managers get calls or um, I just the other day got a letter uh, from J.D. Irving, for example, complaining about comments I made on the CBC in an interview with uh, Terry Sege. And so, uh, you know, that kind, of, that kind of constant calling and, and, and letter writing and so on can have the effect of, uh, of uh, really imposing a chill on the way people um, speak about uh, Irving-related businesses or, or the forestry activities that they're engaged in and the way perhaps even that it's covered. And it's, it's very fast, you know. Those calls happen very quickly. And there's, I'm sure there's many people in the room here who've had that experience or, or been very close to it. So that, that goes on. So it's not just the way Brunswick News is covering the stories and what they're not covering or how they're, you know, placing stories. Like, here's the release of my bill. I was pleased that it was covered in the Telegraph Journal, but, um, you know, nice placement on page uh, five, little thing. And the things they leave out. <laughs> the, thing, the things they leave out, you know, it, it talks about how... So when I, in the gallery at the legislature, there are representatives of uh, independent mills there, an owner of one of the mills, uh, the CEO of another, and uh, his chief financial officer, representatives of many of the woodlot owners and, and who were involved in, in, in the business side of the forest industry in the province. And it, it mentions that there were environmental and Aboriginal representatives, uh, and that's it. So that's kind of interesting that that was uh, left out. This is your recent bill that would modify the, the deal struck by the previous government? The, the, the bill would annul the, uh, essentially the contracts that were established to guarantee for the next 25 years this significant increase in, uh, in softwood cutting. Uh, allowed to, to J.D. Irving and other companies uh, who hold the licenses uh, because the land's never been ceded. Like in B.C., the land's never been ceded by First Nations in New Brunswick, and uh, you would never know that uh, that was the case or that there were even First Nations in New Brunswick by reading Brunswick News. So just to be explicit about this, this is, this is a, a piece of legislation that is directly contrary to the interests of the Irvings. They did cover it in their paper, and your complaint is, it's on page 5, it's a mar- marginally covered, and the way it's covered uh, seems to characterize it as something of interest to fringe voices and not, and not anything to be taken too seriously. Is that accurate? Well, you know, okay, so th- there's a broader critique about media, too. Let's right? have it. That, well, I mean, so sometimes it's difficult to parse out what's going on from the broader critique about media. I mean, so media uh, tends to talk to the powers that be and tends to reflect the conventional wisdom. Right? So if you're, not, if you're not 
connected with the powers that be, or if you're not speaking in the narrative or the voice of conventional wisdom, then you don't tend to have much of a place in the media. And of course, we've got huge financial cutbacks in uh, media outlets like the CBC, so their capacity to do the kind of investigative journalism is, is gone. But uh, but there are specific things, you know, that they're just left out. I mean, read the business pages of, of Brunswick News, and you don't get a robust sense of business enterprise in New Brunswick. Um, and you certainly don't get much of a sense of their businesses. With respect to forestry, it would be hard to know that, uh, that there were independent mills in the province um, and what their struggles were and what their challenges are. Uh, it would be hard to know anything really about the, the economic role of private woodlot owners and the contracting businesses they run. Let's talk about uh, private woodlot owners. I read on the CBC, uh, the prior government said that uh, private woodlot owners would be positively impacted by the deal the Alwar government gave to give crown land to the Irvings. Charles, has that proven out? Has that been true? No, not at all. The... <laughs> It's close to your mic if you can. Okay. I was under the idea that in New Brunswick, forestry was healthy. It was the huge economic engine of the province. Uh, people were not complaining. Everything was, was fine, and the province was making money. When I moved to Kedgwick, I found a whole different picture, which I was not being told. As a communicator, I said, I've got to look into this. And I discovered that, for instance, our mill in Kedgwick, the Irving Company, had been turning wood away. We were supposed to work 12 months a year, two shifts. We were only working seven months a year, one shift. So we were lacking wood. And the Irving Company were saying, well, I guess it's because the government isn't giving us enough wood. At least the deputy minister at the time said, well, I don't get this. You guys should have more than enough wood. And he turned over a page... And on that page stated that there was 83,000 cubic meters of wood that was going to Kedgwick, but the mayor and the people from the mill were saying, no, we're not getting it. And Irving went, oops. So for the last three years, they were taking that wood, which was coming from the Miramichi area, and sending it elsewhere instead of Kedgwick. So that's kind of like robbing our people of $3 million over three years. That hurts our economy. So I wrote a letter to the Irvings, and I said, what's going on? And I got a call back from the mill saying, this is none of your business. And I said, no, no, it is my business. It's Crown Forest. Why are salaries and monies and work not coming to our community? So anyway, the government agreed and said, well, I guess the Irving Company is going to have to return that wood now from wherever it can, or take it from their own land. So I went digging deeper and I realized, okay, the mill was cutting 400,000 cubic meters a year, employing 60 people, but zero came from the private woodlot owners. They weren't buying from the private woodlot owners. Then I went digging deeper, and I found out that in 1982, the Crown Forest Act, which is the base of what we're based on, the industry was supposed to buy from private woodlot owners before having access to Crown Forest. And the price that was paid to the, crown for, uh, to the private woodlot owners would be the same price they would pay the province. So it was kind of fair. 1992, Frank McKenna came along, changed that law. Industry no longer had to buy from private woodlot owners. Overnight, the price dropped 40%. So the private woodlot owners were paid 40% less, 
the province was paid 40% less. Most of them who have private woodlots can't make enough money to pay for gas to cut the wood. Does that, does, that, does that bear out? Have we seen uh, private woodlot owners suffering? What, what, are the, what, what data do we have? Well, the data that we have is that those that live along the border, they cut their wood, they sell to the states. They get a decent price. They cut their wood, they sell to Quebec, they get a decent price. But those that live in southern New Brunswick who don't have a market other than the Irvings or the mills, they're suffering a lot. All of it has to do with the fact that the company and the industries have access to the crown forest in a non-limited way. They don't necessarily have to buy from the private woodland owners. Yet the private woodland owners, that's 30% of the forest in New Brunswick. Now you've taken it upon yourself to tell this story to yes. provide uh, an alternate source of information in, in these short documentaries that you produce and you post them to Vimeo and you host yeah. them on your website. Yeah. Uh, have you found an audience? Are you making a dent? What has the response been and, and what obstacles, if any, well, have, you, have you hit? Well, the response is interesting because the first two or three times I had to go looking for people. But then, no, people started calling me. Former deputy ministers, former ministers, university profs, specialists in forestry. They've been coming to me and say, now I have a story to tell. But again, with your media project, can, yeah. you, can you get answers? Can you get response? Do you find that it's well, having I've, an impact? I've, got a, I've been at it for over two years. I have 164,000 views okay, of the videos, mm -hmm. lots of hits. I get feedback. I have people signing on. I have signatures. My idea is just to keep raising awareness, and it's working. It is. Since we're talking about independent media, Tracy, I'd like to bring you into the conversation. Yeah. You know, we talked a bit, and, and David gave us some context on, you know, the extent to which there's Irving influence directly in the newsroom. When, when Jacques was on Canada Land earlier, uh, you know, you painted a bit of a picture of how it's not always so direct as that, and what happens in a newsroom culture uh, when people are aware of the constraints that they exist within, and also what isn't getting said because of the lack of other media outlets. And there is a unique situation with uh, a, a scarcity of other media outlets. And I'm wondering if you can tell me the story of what happened to the Carlton Free Press. Um, so the, the Carlton Free Press a, a few years ago um, started up by Ken Langdon, who did work for a Brunswick newspaper, uh, the, the Bugle Observer in, in Carlton County. Um, he tried to start up the Carlton Free Press uh, and was met by a numerous... Uh, roadblocks that the Irving Press put up. Uh, first, uh, an injunction to try to uh, to stop him from operating a paper by saying that he was cutting into the advertising rates, which was what which did not go for because that didn't make any sense. And then, but in the end, uh, the paper ended up getting shut down because the the Irving paper, the Bugle Observer, uh, had cut their advertising rates and making um, it very difficult for the the paper to. Uh, Right. Make a go out of it. So the first attempt was an attempt to, to limit the ability for this rival paper to come up through the law. Yeah, yeah. So there was different. Uh, there was also um, they had used this obscure. What was it? A. Uh, it's it's a sorry. It's a it's a kind of a court order that started in Britain where you can, um, uh, in an urgent case, supposedly you can uh, actually send a, investigators into the other party's property and seize evidence and hold it without that, the other party even knowing that you've gone to court to apply for it. On what grounds? Uh, that, that the evidence could 
could disappear if you don't go get it right away. But but even the even but the evidence judge, of what? What were they looking? Even the for? judge who pioneered this uh, this tool in in Britain described it as having turned into a Frankenstein monster that is abused regularly by the courts. Did that happen? Was there a search? Yeah. The uh, sorry, you go ahead. Uh, yeah, there was a search. I don't think. Uh, they, they searched uh, Ken Langdon's uh, wife's underwear drawer, actually, for evidence in his house. <laughs> evidence of what? At, well, they were searching for evidence. He had worked at the uh, Woodstock Bugle. They were searching for evidence that he had taken corporate information from his old job to start the new paper. And when all of that failed, they undercut them for ad rates? Yep. Yeah. Did the ad rates go back up after the Carlton Free Press that's was out of business? That's a question. I don't know the answer. No, I'm not sure. But they, they always said that uh, these ad rate fluctuations are just normal, normal market function. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, 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 I was going to jump in on what uh, Tracy and Charles said just about in general. Uh, I think the situation is better than it was five or ten years ago because uh, the cost of entry into the market has been leveled by online. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think, I think what... Canada Land did this week uh, is, a, is a great illustration. In 2009, when we had the, the Wafergate affair, as it became known, this was when the Telegraph Journal had to apologize to Stephen Harper uh, after the newspaper reported wrongly, as they, as they later said, that he had pocketed a communion wafer at a state funeral. It was kind of a, from the kind of a ridiculous little thing that became a big thing. But the extent of their discussion of it was, uh, you know, probably an eight-paragraph apology to, to Stephen Harper, which many people interpreted as avoiding a legal action. This week, I mean, I, you have your rebuttal to the ombudsman's columns, obviously, and um, there are unanswered questions in her columns. But that, even that level of disclosure by the company about what went wrong in their editorial process would not have happened five years ago. And she, I, did, she did come out with new information. She did progress the story. Yeah, she did. She did add a lot. And there's no question in my mind, if it had been five years ago, maybe someone would have been fired. There would have been nothing said about it. We all would have wondered. So that's, you know, that's what Canada Land has done. I mean, Charles's videos are, you know, uh, he's, he's not some crazy lunatic. These are interviews with... I think former, they're great. I with think. former bureaucrats, with former cabinet ministers, mm-hmm. with, with people who know what they're talking about. They, are, they, are, they have been in the milieu and uh, are authoritative people. Uh, you may not agree with the conclusions, but there's more churn in the debate, I think, than, than there ever has been, frankly. But, but I'm being ignored. I have to tell you this little story. I have a friend, you may know him, Daniel Poirier. He worked for 30 years as a journalist for Radio-Canada. And he retired last summer. Five days after his retirement, he calls me up, says, Charles, can I go up to Kedrick and talk? Sure. I didn't really, I'd met him 30 years prior. He says, uh, I have to tell you this. We journalists would sit in the newsroom in Moncton and watch your stuff. And we're just all in awe and we're all amazed by how do you get these guys to talk this way? How do you get these politicians, ex-politicians to open up? So how do you or do these it? these experts. Well, they contact me, which is what's interesting, because I've become a vehicle. But he said, Charles, we're sitting there, we're all in on. I said, great, well, why don't you report on me? He says, we've been told to ignore you. He says, what do you mean? He says, nah, we've been told you're too controversial, we can't report on you. Now, the interesting thing about CBC, they've never talked about me, but they've interviewed all of the people I interviewed a week after... I put them up on the web. 
So. so I am having some sort of impact. I'll talk to you later about that. They owe us both checks. <laughs> I'm purposely being ignored. Didn't Gandhi say something like that? First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Well, I'm, I'm still at the first step. <laughs> I just, you know, just to kind of broaden this, I think it's really difficult for people in the rest of the country to get their heads around this. Maybe one of you could, could or you could collaborate and, and try to answer this question. Like, let's say that I was a private citizen in this province, and I just decided that I, I wasn't a fan of the Irvings, and I didn't want to do business with them. I didn't want to be their employee or their customer or their reader. And I'm not talking about an activist who is going to get mobilized and, and do something, just somebody who, who doesn't, who just wants to opt out of Irving. What would that entail? What, 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 what would you not be able to do if you didn't want... Can I, can I take this one? Cause Please. Because I, I, I have a former colleague uh, in St. John who's tried to start her own media company, independent. Now, working with some business and some of the business crowd in St. John. So she sort of has become a bit of a pundit, and sometimes she's on CBC morning shows uh, talking about different things. And so she had an experience a couple weeks ago where uh, she was on because the mayor of St. John took a free flight on the Irving Plain to Fredericton to attend the State of the Province speech. The premier was giving his annual speech. The mayor was offered a flight on the Irving Plain, so he came up. Now, of course, he deals with the Irvings on all sorts of tax and other local municipal issues. So they had a panel on on CBC to talk about whether this uh, was a conflict of interest and so on, and she offered the opinion on the show that it was or that it might violate the rules. And she got an incredible uh, level of hostility from other business people in St. John, not directly employed by the Irvings, but just who are sort of part of the St. John and area crowd, civic business boosters, you know, and was accused of being negative, was accused of being offside. One person said something to the effect of, there's too much negativity. She wasn't addressing her directly, but a lot of people interpreted it as a rebuttal to what she'd said on the radio. If, if you can't be kind or be positive, then please be quiet. That, that's not good for journalism. <laughs> so, uh, so this is someone who's kind of trying to do her own thing, uh, contribute to the debate. She's not a left-wing, radical, anti-Irving person. She's just trying to sort of offer a different take on things and came on this show and just said something that was a bit off the consensus message and really got quite raked over the coals for it. So that is kind of an example of what can happen when, when you're not part of the team. Like in the Lego movie, you know, everything is awesome when you're part of the team. That was, that was a bit of what it was like. Mm-hmm. David, you haven't uh, jumped in in a while. Let me ask you this question. Let's take this as a whole here. I mean, the Irvings are a massive Canadian success story. They're a massive New Brunswick success story. They employ an incredible number of people in this province. I, I, I think I heard the figure one in 10. They generate an incredible amount of revenue in this province. Add it all up and subtract the negative. Is it possible that the Irvings give more to New Brunswick than they take? If they didn't have um, such an influence on government, on politicians... That would be an interesting question. Um, but the experience in New Brunswick has been government after government after government has uh, basically um, uh, responded very positively to most of the things that, uh, that the Irving interests are looking for. In this mo- most recent situation where these 25-year contracts were signed, that's the one thing that 
governments had held off on. It had been requested, as, as Jacques had mentioned, uh, since about 2001 that we know of anyways because the document was leaked to me at the time by, by a labor activist. So I, I had it and I released it. Government after government did say, no, we're drawing the line. We're not, we're not going to do this. We're not going to guarantee 25 years of all this extra, extra wood that's not, that gives away too much. The past government uh, folded its tent and said, you can have it which is why so many people are, are outraged by that. Um, I mean, the last premier who really stood up to the Irving powerhouse was uh, Louis Robichaud a long time ago, um, and he paid a terrible price personally for that, but accomplished much for the province uh, in doing so in terms of diversifying the economy and, and making some other very progressive changes. But uh, that was a long time ago, and we haven't seen anything like it since. That's a very interesting answer to a different question, but I understand, and I thank you for it. <laughs> Jacques, maybe, I'm, and, and, and perhaps I'll ask this as um, my last question before we open it up to questions. Um, and I'm just going to ask you for a fact check. Somebody ran a, a quote by me earlier today, and nobody at the table could, could verify if it's true, if it's accurate. Maybe you would know. Did Casey Irving once say that he never lost an election? I, I don't know if he said it or if someone who dealt with him said it of him. I don't think he said it. Or I think Richard Hadfield said that when Robichaud was reelected in '67, it was the first time Casey Irving had lost an election. I think that's what I think that may be, might have sort of gone morphed through, through yeah, the yeah, morphed. And what do you think he meant by that? Well, you know, '67 and that election, which involved a big reform of uh, the tax structure in New Brunswick, which affected the Irvings, was kind of the first big. Uh, democratic collision between Irving and a government, and it's a famous election because Irving threw everything he had at the Liberal government to try to defeat it. But when you, uh, so a lot of people mark sort of the start of the Irving story as that election or the start of the modern Irving story, but when you go back and read sort of profiles of Casey Irving in McLean's magazine in 1964, you'll see people quoted saying that like for 20 years governments have been, had been giving him what he wanted. And there's a quote in the McLean's profile in 64 where someone said, we don't have a democracy in this province. I think the, the, what you quote is uh, perhaps a reflective in spirit of reality if it's not an accurate quote itself. <laughs> I would like to thank our very brave panelists today, and I would I'd like to ask you to give them a very warm round of applause. <laughs> And I want, to thank, I want to thank the NB Media Co-op and, and Jan Wong for that warm introduction. And let's open it up to questions. And maybe we can get the lights on in here. And I think, is there, is there a mic around? The mic is there. And if, um, you don't, if you don't mind, if you're willing to, state your name before asking the question. Okay, I'm Janice Harvey. Um, I teach here at St. Thomas um, in the Environment and Society program, but I'm also married to David. This question isn't necessarily for him. Um, <laughs> but uh, so m uh, my sense is uh, that it's kind of interesting the way the Irving Press and particularly the Telegraph Journal takes these sort of takes on these campaigns for their interests. Mm -hmm. And remember the energy hub, you know, sort of promise of great wealth in St. John that was like the 
editorial stance of the Telegraph Journal was just relentless, and it went on and on and on, and it was just this incredible boosterism for an energy hub, and it was, and of course the Irving Refinery would be in the middle of that, and some other some stuff. Same with the benefits to the concessions to the pulp industry, right? With it needed to get lower electricity rates and needed to get more wood promised and all this. So there's relentless campaigns in these papers for these positions. And what I find interesting is that they are effective in influencing public policy. So they shape a, a public policy discourse, but they don't convince anybody you know, the general public is not convinced by that. There's, a, to some, there's some stuff going on there that needs to happen, connect at some point. It's a very interesting argument. I'll try to find the question in it. Um, if, <laughs> there is one. It, it, you know, it, when you run editorials, are you actively trying to convince everybody of something, or are you trying to create the appearance that everybody hears an opinion that's in the newspaper, and if nobody else says otherwise, and I guess maybe reasonable people will assume, like, oh, I guess that's an acceptable mainstream opinion. What is actually happening? Is uh, the media uh, holdings of the Irving family successful in influencing public opinion, or is it more just that kind of consensus reality that I described? Here's one thing that I think we see happen is... um a debate will happen in, in the newspapers, but it's the surface debate. So, you know, David's bill shows up on page five, so it's in there. And, and I, I mentioned this in my book, too, and we talked about it when I was on the show. Every day, news, newsrooms make subjective decisions, so it's hard to point to a specific decision and say that proves this or that proves that. But there's no deeper level reporting or analysis on the power dynamics behind it. There's no acknowledgement of the influence of this, of this company. And no acknowledgement that the company's connected to the newspaper. So, so that, that affects the cynicism. Where's the then, true journalism? Then, yeah. That's what's missing. Then you've got the paywall, which, which cuts out a lot of uh, potential audience. Several people told me that when the Graham government tried to sell the provincial power utility, and it was widely seen as uh, a gift to uh, J.D. Irving Limited because it was going to lower their power rates and other big industrial power rates, that they miscalculated. They really catered to the Telegraph Journal newspaper and trying to shape what was on the front page every day, forgetting that the Telegraph Journal didn't have nearly the influence it did. It wasn't, it wasn't the, the leading political paper that it had been 15 years before. If you, if you won the front page of the Telegraph Journal, you weren't winning or shaping the debate the way you used to. I don't know. What I do know is the last two premiers in New Brunswick both lost their bid for re-election for a second term after being accused of Massive giveaways to the Irvings. Someone who watches these things closely did say, say to me that, you know, the two premiers who hugged Jim Irving ended up out after one term. So, And certainly if, if you look at, at the, the survey work that's been done on people's attitudes about forestry, uh, all those efforts have failed. Uh, the work that uh, Dr. Tom Beckley's done from the University of New Brunswick with his colleagues to do a very extensive and, and you know, science, sort of academically rooted survey, public opinion survey, what he found was uh, that, that public opinion was very different from um, the, the kind of messaging, messaging, the narrative coming out of the uh, Telegraph Journal, for example, for example. The priorities were very different. Who they trusted were very different than you would expect. So we'll limit it to the four people who are, to make sure that everybody gets home on time. And everybody, uh, think of a sentence that ends with a question mark. <laughs> yes. Uh, hi, my name's Sean McCollum. I'm a budding young journalist here at Stu, and I'm not married to David Kuhn. <laughs> I wish I was. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> to get to the question, so like you said earlier, if, uh, if Irving employs something like one in ten New Brunswickers, it's kind of hard to speak out against your employer. People are very tight-lipped about it. And then Canada Land just seems to kind of roll into town and blow up this whole Larry's Gulch story. Who's supposed to hold companies like Irving accountable? What does it say about New Brunswick journalism, and what does it say about the future of it? Jacques, you want to take this one? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, as Jesse knows, I'm not here to speak about the CBC. We've done a lot of coverage of the forestry industry at the CBC. Probably not as much, and maybe not always in the direction that everyone else on the panel would seek. You know, we've broken some stories about it. I, I broke the story about the, uh, the petition tabled in the legislature that looked like a grassroots petition of thousands of people in favor of more cutting. I think I interviewed you for that story. And it turned out to have been organized by the industry in their mills and then presented to um, members of the legislature at a free lunch sponsored by the forestry industry. And then the MLAs went back across the street to the legislature tabled in the legislature without mentioning that it was an industry-orchestrated thing. So, we, we, I mean, we do to try to do the stories as they come. Next question, please. Hi, I'm Joan Headley. Um, I heard it said that the First Nations people had not ceded the land. So I was wondering why we're still using the term crown land, or if we do use that term, why we don't qualify it each and every time. I think that's an important point, Joan. Uh, I know the media co-op does try to, whenever we do talk about the land here in New Brunswick, that we do say that it's unceded. If it's here in Willistook territory, unfortunately, many, many, when I talk to people about what even unceded territory means, they don't even know what that means. They don't know also that we're a treaty people. I know that David has a story to tell about a letter to the editor that he tried to get published about um, about that fact that we are all treaty people. It's not just the First Nations that have a, the treaties. It's, it's we do too. We have obligations that we should that we are failing with every deal that gets made on our, on our crown land. Um, and uh, media co-ops across the country have been referring to also the traditional names of of these lands. I, uh, I actually, in my stories, try to call it public land. Uh, I, I know that's not on your point specifically, but I find the term crown land is kind of obscure for a lot of people. It's not quite clear what that means. So if I say public land, it mean, I mean it's owned by the public, and that's a bit more clear on, on you know, who, who's supposed to have influence over how that land is handled. Right. Uh, I, have a, <clears throat> I have a sense that the more we talk about it, the more that it gets accepted that it is not our land. I know that in French New Brunswick, I've heard it often now, more and more often. And, and in French, I don't say crown land, I say public land, terre public. But I've heard it more and more often, well, it's not really ours, is it, either? You know. So that's becoming an accepted fact. We just have to keep talking about it and keep putting that message out there. Hi, I'm Joseph Tunney. I'm a third-year journalism student here at St. Thomas. My question is, was anyone from the BNI approached to be on this panel as a fifth person? Not to my knowledge. Is that, I guess my follow-up, uh, we're talking a lot about excluding people. Is this an exclusion? Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. I would, I just, they, they, they have a platform. <laughs> this is something else. That's a good point. Yeah. I, I think it's an excellent point, and I, 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 I think that we could have uh, another great conversation that would be inclusive of that, but I think it's important to have other conversations as well. Yes. Hello, my name is Alex Corbett. I'm also a journalism student here. And I'm wondering what, with the uh, Gulchgate 
scandal kind of unfolding? To what degree we're going to see the uh, the Irvings and the newspapers uh, kind of? Are we going to see them play damage control or play down this news, or how are they going to react to this this scandal? I think I think we're going to wait and see because it's it's still new and there's still a lot more to come out. So we'll we'll see how. I mean, I'm going to be very interested. Uh, I've got a paperback version of my book coming out in September that needs a new chapter, so I'm going to be very interested in how this all unfolds. <laughs> Glad to help. Uh, <laughs> one last time, I want to thank everybody here for coming out on this snowy night, and I'd like you to give yourselves a round of applause and a round of applause for our panelists and for Jan Wong. Was your Canada Land show? I hope you enjoyed it. You can always reach me at jesse at jessebrown.ca. I read them all. I respond when I can. I am on Twitter at Jesse Brown. The show's website is at canadalandshow.com, and the crowdfunding website is at patreon.com/canadaland. The next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. If you like this show, support it. Thank you again, Fredericton. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.